Hello, and thank you all so much for joining us for another episode of the Professional Pricing Society podcast. Today is a great day. We have our very special guest with us, Jean Manuel Isaret, or also known as JMI. He is going to be speaking with us today about his latest book called Game Changer. He also is going to be joining us in Atlanta this upcoming October, uh, October 10th through the 13th to be specific, for our fall conference. And he's going to be leading a very powerful conversation and discussion. Um, he's actually going to be one of our keynote speakers, so we're very excited to have him with us today. JMI is a global leader of Boston Consulting Group's marketing, sales, and pricing practice. Jean-Manuel Isaret, how are you doing today? Very good. Very good, Terrence. Nice to be here. Good, good. Glad to have you. And before we get into the meat and potatoes of this discussion, if you don't mind informing me and as well as the listeners, how did you first get involved in pricing? Uh, this is an excellent question. It's a bit of an origin story. Um, my yeah. first job, I worked at Shell. Um, and I started in refinery as an engineer, but very quickly I was more interested into commercial operations. And so I moved to a sales job, uh, managing a set of regions of service stations. And, nice. uh, and, and part of the job was to set the prices every morning for mm. each of these service stations. Um, and, and that was very instructive because every station is in a different place in a different corner. You yeah. don't have the same competition. And therefore, you need to really be keen on, okay, what type of customers do I have? What type of road am I on? Who are the competitors? How are they pricing? And every morning, you make a lot of pricing decisions, mm. which means you could learn within a year with experiments with 50 stations. There is a lot you can learn. And then I went to the headquarters and had uh, a more a more bigger role across all of France when I, I played a role in the pricing of all the service stations and on promotions and products. And so that was a real discovery about uh, how you can you could play with pricing. And given how elasticities are different in every in every different place, mm -hmm. uh, you can make a lot more money than if you don't the average your pricing strategy. That's mm -hmm. a great learning ground. Yeah, for sure. It sounds like a great foundation from a pricing background. Now, and that goes and that plays a large role into this book called Game Changer. Uh, there are a lot of pricing books out there at the moment. What inspired you to write this one? Continuing on, on the story a little bit to explain why I wrote this book. Uh, after Shell, I joined uh, BCG and I started to do pricing at BCG. And at the time, I read all of the uh, early seminal books on, on pricing, the strategy mm -hmm. and tactics of pricing, the uh, Pricing Profitably by Kent Monroe and, and many others. And they were great, fantastic books. Um, but uh, over the years, we've all developed new new strategies. We've understood how pricing has been uh, evolving in different markets in different ways. Many new concepts have been introduced. And all of the new books that have been published tended to pick a topic mm -hmm. uh, and, let's say, value-based. And you have a number of books on value-based pricing. And you have books on contextual pricing. Mm -hmm. And you have books on different aspects of pricing. And I thought with all the evolution that we have seen that it was time to uh, to clean up a little bit the complexity of all the concepts that we have mm. and come back to the fundamentals and think about pricing strategy and lay out a set of approaches that are relatively simple and help the reader and help pricing people, people that are new to the pricing topic, sift through the different strategies 
mm-hmm. to pick which one is really relevant for them. And mm-hmm. so that book is a way to go back at the theory. I call it sometimes the unified theory of pricing, but it's also a way, therefore, for people to pick up which part of pricing they should be using in which mm-hmm. circumstance and what is going to be the best fit for them in their business. Okay. Wow. Sounds good. So it, it sounds like this is a, almost a situational aspect. If I'm, if I'm new to pricing, I want to pick up this book. I can actually, you know, learn more about not just one, I guess, uh, aspect of pricing, but multiple. Now it says it in the title of the book, Game Changer. Um, But why do you think the approach you're proposing is such a game changer in pricing today? Oh, thank you. That's that's an excellent question. It's actually a game changer in two ways. First, in order to develop this unified uh, theory of pricing, we try to simplify it. And we're saying there are seven different pricing games Mm -hmm. and uh, companies can choose which game they want to play. In that sense, it's literally a game changer. You could change Mm -hmm. your game. And so you have a cost plus game. You have a value-based game. You have a customized game. And so I I could discuss a little bit more, more what these games are, but essentially companies need to choose which game they want to play. Mm. And therefore it's a book about changing the game. Mm. And if, and, and, and very often you see industries evolve in ways where the game changes over time. Take retail, for example, all the retailers started 100 plus years ago by just adding a fixed markup. They were taking their cost and pricing it up by, by a small margin. And that was it. And then they all discovered elasticity. And, uh, and so these are two different games. The cost plus game and the elasticity game mm-hmm. are two different games and they change to, from one to the next. Uh, today, retailers are more sophisticated. Some of them price dynamically, changing prices much more regularly than they used to be, especially e-tailers and on e-commerce. That's another change of game. And so each time an industry evolves, it tends to change its pricing game. Mm-hmm. And it's really helpful for people that are in a particular game to change uh, to understand how they could change the game going forward for the benefit of their company and sometimes for the benefits of the entire market. Hmm. So that's the first aspect about why this book is a game changer. It helps you change the game. But hmm. the second aspect of this is, this is a book about pricing strategy. Sure. And what I mean by pricing strategy is we're trying to help people go beyond the numbers. Very often people see pricing as a tactical numbers exercise. I'm just going to determine what the price. The reality is before you have uh, the you make the decision of determining what price you're going to charge, mm-hmm. there's a lot of decisions that you have to make before that. Mm-hmm. You decide what unit are you pricing uh, the offer that you have? What is the offer itself? What are the choices you give to customers? What is the pricing model? Are you offering a subscription or are you offering a one-time uh, purchase? There's all sorts of decisions that are made before you decide on the number. Mm-hmm. And when you go to this level of strategy, uh, strategic pricing, you get to a different understanding of where your market is, and you can have even more impact than just by moving the numbers up or down. Mm. And that, in that sense, that's a game changer because you can get more impact for longer periods of time. Wow. So you, there's a several concepts in this book that um, you know we can learn a lot about, a lot from. A lot of different insights in this book. And, you know, there's a lot of different thoughts that goes into what a game changer is, the different types of games pricers can play, essentially. 
One of the things you mentioned is, uh, you know, how companies should leave money on the table. You know, if you don't mind kind of expounding, expounding on that for us, what do you mean by companies should leave money on the table? So uh, it, it's I'm, there's also a few parts of this book that are a bit provocative. Yeah. And, I, uh, and we hear in pricing, people tend to say uh, you need to price as much to get as much price as you can. And in many circumstances, that makes sense. And and derivatively, people say should never leave money on the table. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. if you never leave money on the table, then why would customers work with you? Mm. Pricing is an exchange of a product or service between a customer and uh, and someone selling that product and that service. There needs to be value, and that is on both sides of the equation. Mm-hmm. The customers need to find some good value, and of course, the seller needs to find some good value. Mm-hmm. And the balance between that value is what I like companies to think about. And so when you leave a little bit of money on the table, you could get a longer term relationship. You could get more loyalty from your customers. And that in, that in turn can enhance your marketing and strategic positioning. And so sometimes thinking about uh, how do you create more value than your competitors and how do you leave that value in the hands of the customers as opposed to trying to getting paid everything today Mm-hmm. is is uh, is a game changer mm-hmm. uh, and helps people think differently about about the market okay okay so essentially this is a like any great thing this is a balancing act um, that, that it is a balancing place. act and so you could think about for instance when salesforce.com launched uh, at the beginning they were trying to differentiate themselves from traditional software mm-hmm. uh, and traditional software the pricing model was pay up front, and the companies like Oracle were trying to get paid as much as they could upfront. Mm-hmm. And Salesforce.com implicitly start with a really low price points, very easy to come on. Instead of buying the software for all the enterprise, you could just buy it for a few users, which is why their pricing model on pay per user per month was much more accessible. Mm-hmm. They were literally leaving money on the table initially. Mm. But they were leaving money on the table to create loyal customers and then eventually upsell them to better products and larger and get the entire sales force on board with their product. But they didn't ask the customers to buy everything right away at the beginning. I'm Mm. caricaturing a bit the situation, but that's a good illustration of when you set up a new business, you want to do something for your customers that your competitors are not doing. You want to leave a little bit of money on the table. And you want to create that value over time in a shared spirit between your customers and what you do for them. Mm. Good. That's really good. Okay. So you want to create that environment in which, uh, you know, the customer finds value in whatever your service or product is. And of course you want to continue to gain their trust over the upcoming years um, thereafter. Now, does that kind of tie into this concept of pricing fairness? Uh, It does. Uh, and fairness is a really like how to be fair in the world. It's a really complicated thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but there is a lot of discussions about is it a fair price and mm-hmm. and what does a fair price mean? And and we've thought a lot about about that. And different situations, different things can be can be fair. And so from a pricing standpoint, if you say is it fair that two people get the different price on the same thing, you're going to get everybody saying absolutely that's not fair. Why why should he received a lower price than me. I'm not happy with the price because I know now that he received a lower price than my price for mm. the same thing. 
You mm -hmm. tend to be upset about this. That's unfair. Mm -hmm. Okay. But if you ask people, is it fair to give a discount to grandpa and grandma? Mm -hmm. Everywhere in the world, <laughs> people will say, of course, we need to give some relief to grandpa and grandma. It's fair to give a discount to the seniors and to all the older generations. You find this across all product categories in Japan, in the US, in France, mm -hmm. Germany, we did studies. Everybody agrees on, okay, it's good to give a discount and to have a lower price for certain categories of, of people, particularly people that are the seniors. Okay, mm -hmm. now let's flip the, the, the question and ask, is it fair to give a discount to a student? Student mm -hmm. doesn't have that much money. It's mm -hmm. on the other side of the age spectrum. Mm -hmm. And on that, you find very big splits. You have yeah. some people in uh, in different countries that will think differently, depending on how students are helped uh, by the, uh, the states and society. And so suddenly you find some in the US where students have to pay for college and so on. You tend to have a lot of people saying, hey, Students need to be helped. It's okay to give them some discounts early. Mm -hmm. uh, but then not everybody agrees. Mm -hmm. And what you find is as people get older, some older people don't want to give discounts to young people. Because like, hey, you know, I had a tough life. This is it. They need to start like everybody <laughs> else. And why would they get a discount? Sure. There is a good logic for that. When you ask people about who, when you look at who they are and why they don't want that, you tend to find that conservatives are less willing to give discounts to students, mm. while uh, people that are more progressive tend to be uh, on the side of giving discounts to students. Suddenly, fairness depends on who you are and the way you look at society. Mm. And so uh, you have all sorts of situations that then could arise in different markets. Uh, and I think the concept of fairness, understanding that it varies depending on people, and that companies have a role in explaining why when they give a discount, they think it is fair to give that discount to people. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, we're giving discounts in a cinema, in a movie theater uh, early on because the, the room is not as full and we'd like to encourage people to come earlier. That that can, can make sense. Mm -hmm. uh, we give the discounts to people who lower our costs. So you give a discount if we can directly ship you the product as opposed to going through a store, for instance. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So you have all sorts of reasons that you could give different prices to different people. Sure. And that can seem fair, uh, but that needs to be explained and companies have a choice in how they explain that. Mm -hmm. And over time, you can get people to get used to more price differentiation that they might be at the beginning. Mm. Early on, 30 years ago, when the airlines started to give different prices to everyone in a particular airplane, a lot of people were complaining, my neighbor has a lower price than me. Like, how is that fair? Mm -hmm. But then progressively, we understood that actually having different prices, depending on whether you book early or not, also corresponds to the types of passenger you are. If you're in business and you want to, to travel right away, mm. uh, you're going to be willing to pay more because your company is going to pay for the same trip. Whereas mm. if you are a tourist and you can plan your, your vacation for three months or six months or nine months ahead of time, maybe you can deserve to have a lower price points. And that overall has allowed us to have much more air travel mm. and to have people going around uh, and to discover other people, other societies and so on, all sorts of good benefits from traveling around. Mm. And therefore, having different prices in the airlines is now quite accepted. Mm -hmm. by most of the customers, even though some people still ask questions, but it's much more accepted than it was 30 years ago.
And so the point that I'm trying to make here is fairness is complex, but uh, you have some principles about uh, what is fair and what is not fair. And companies, by explaining what they do and why they do things, can be uh, uh, can help customers see what they think and what they do as being more fair than otherwise. They mm -hmm. ought to explain to people why their pricing is fair. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's a lot to think about. But it's, it's actually kind of simple. But the concept of fairness when it comes to a business standpoint does sound like it can be a complex phenomenon. Yes. I mean, you have some certain companies that have reward systems. And if you, you know, purchase a certain number of products, you could get a discount on the next product or whatever the case is, you know, something similar to that. That That's exactly that. The very often one important thing uh, point about fairness is procedural fairness is the mm -hmm. process by which things were decided that some people would do differently. Was mm -hmm. that process a fair process? Mm -hmm. And so in the example, people get discounts not because they look good. People get discounts because they bought more products. Sure. And yeah. anybody who buys more product will get the discounts. Mm -hmm. Everybody will feel this is fair. This is a mm -hmm. really excellent example. Mm -hmm. Okay. Interesting. That's good to know. Now you say in the subtitle, that strategic pricing shapes society in addition to businesses and markets. If you don't mind, elaborate on that a little bit for us. Yes. So we all know we've all been in the in the world of pricing, and we will know that we all know that a good pricing strategy uh, can shape the business and can shape the market. I gave the example of Salesforce.com mm -hmm. that invented software as a service by changing the pricing model to uh, a price per user per month as opposed to upfront. Uh, and perpetual licenses. Mm -hmm. um, but very often the structure of pricing can also shape society in a, in a broader way and in a way that we forget because it's always been this way and we don't really realize it. Uh, these are decisions about the pricing structure and not just the price points. Let me take an example. Uh, think about tipping. Mm -hmm. In the US, mm -hmm. we all know that tips tend to be higher than they are in Europe. And there are some cultures where there's no tipping at all. Mm -hmm. So how much you tip is a choice uh, that not only you make as an individual, but also you make as a society. Um, do you know when the U.S. starting tipping differently uh, than Europe and having tips be a bigger part of the income of all the service workers mm -hmm. versus uh, when it was in, in Europe? In Europe, for instance, people... Uh, tipping, the word for tipping is pour boire. It just says it's for you to drink on the Friday evening. It's <laughs> not to pay for your roof and the, mm. and the food for your kids. Mm. It's just a nice to have as a compliment. Whereas mm. in the US, we all know that if we don't tip service workers as much, like they, it's their income mostly depends on the tips. Yeah, yeah. Do you know when that started? I have no idea when that started. Okay. You might guess it started maybe 50 years ago maybe 100 years ago? Well, it happened to start to date from the days just after the Civil War. Wow. <laughs> and with the abolition of slavery, to make things pretty simple, a set of companies still didn't want to pay mm -hmm. a number of service people. And they basically decided to say, oh, what if we let the customers pay for the service people? That'd be great. And mm -hmm. Pullman were one of the first companies who established this as a rule about the customers should know that they're the one with their tips paying for uh, the, the entire salary and the entire income of the service workers. 
And over time, that ex that expands to all kinds of services and so on, right? Uh, the outcome of this is that we now have uh, a lot of potential discrimination that happens in, say, the restaurant industry that has been well documented, right? Sure, sure. We, we all know that women, uh, for instance, face some discrimination. We all know that people of color may face some discrimination. People tend to tip more people that look like them. Right, mm. that's just a, a buy of society. Mm. By deciding to have the tip being a separate thing from the meal that you pay, mm -hmm. you basically decide that the company is not responsible for the discrimination that is going to happen by essentially customers tipping people different amounts. Mm -hmm. That shapes society, mm. and and that's a shape of society that we still have. One hundred fifty years later, is still happening. Uh, and is still shaping how the, the outcome is working out. Mm. Now, that shaping of tipping goes also all sorts of ways, right? Because of the, I talked about the biases and discrimination for, for different customers. But uh, think about what happened the last uh, three years with COVID, with the swivel of the terminal when you are not only in a yep. restaurant, but in sometimes a shop, you know, even the orthodontist now has some tipping. Okay. Mm, wow. And and that could be surprising. And 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 you see the screen, the screen in front of you is giving you a choice about how much you tip, and all people behind you in the line are going to be able to see it too. <laughs> yeah. So so tipping that was a private act for years and years is now a public act, and that has forced some people to tip more than they would have otherwise. And so and then you have some backlash against that, uh, but then many companies have benefited from it and actually get more tips because. Uh, of we've all wanted to tip people more during uh, mm. during COVID because we wanted all the businesses to survive, right? Mm -hmm. And so the fact that you have the tip as a separate item and a big item, not just two to three to five percent, but 15, 20, 30 percent is something that really shapes essentially how we make decisions and how we uh, mm. companies get paid and, and how society works. It's just an example. It's a structural pricing decision mm -hmm. that has multiple implications in all sorts of directions, uh, and it shapes society. Mm. That's funny you mentioned that because I've been at certain, I won't say the name of the restaurants, but I've been at certain, you know, little cafes just to yes. get maybe a drink or, or a coffee or something very uh, minuscule and just not that large in price. But when they turn that swivel, swivel around and show the screen, there are times where I'm, I almost feel bad for not tipping, even that's though right. there was not much service, pro, you know, provided. And that's, that, a, that's, that's, that's exactly right. So the, the psychology, we know that psychology plays a key role in pricing. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And by changing the psychology, the swivel is actually changing the amounts that people turn out mm -hmm. to pay. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and that's a structural decision. And that's what I wanted to highlight. And so the psychology of humans works in all sorts of different ways. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it's really important in as you make pricing decision to think about how that can impact your customers mm -hmm. <clears throat> and your brand. Sure, absolutely. Jean-Manuel Isret, also known as JMI, it was a pleasure to speak with you today. We're going to use this podcast as a teaser for your speaking engagement that is going to happen in Atlanta this October. Very excited to have you. Very excited to hear about your expertise and your insight in the realm of pricing as well. Uh, before I let you go, do you mind uh, just kind of sharing with our listeners where, you know, any kind of resources you have available 
um, where they can find more information about you and maybe the different things you've done over the course of the years? Sure. Uh, first, thank you, Terrence. It was a great discussion. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to seeing everybody uh, at the conference in, in Atlanta in October. Uh, mm -hmm. People interested in learning more can uh, type game changer uh, and pricing and uh, in their Google and they will have it. There is also a web page on our BCG website about the about the book. There is an interactive uh, uh, page that allows people to discover more of the concept that I was describing and to play with it. Mm -hmm. And I hope that in a, in a few uh, weeks, we will be able to come out with a bot that will be able to respond to any questions people will have about the book. Uh, and that, nice. that would be quite fun. That'd be nice. That sounds fun. Well, thank you so much again, sir, for your time. And until next time, we'll see you guys later. Bye-bye.